Good morning, everybody. Uh, John was right that I did uh, tell him to sing this song. I, I asked him if he thought it was a good idea. He liked it. But I can also pass the blame a little bit. Brandon Shufflebarger originally suggested it to me. So if he thought it was super weird, just get mad at him. Uh, we'll keep reading. We're going to cover three chapters today in the sermon. We're not going to read all of it. Um, we'll jump a little further ahead from where Amanda was reading. I'm going to start from 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 19, and we'll read a little ways into chapter 23. So this is 1 Samuel 22, starting at verse 19. David's basically running away from Saul all through these chapters. Uh, he keeps escaping from him in various places. And so now we keep going. We're back um, in this city that David went to at first with all the priests. And Nob, the city of the priests, Doeg put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at, to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your word. Help us to see that it is sweeter than honey, uh, more valuable than any amount of gold. Uh, we want to see in your law beautiful, delightful things. And as we see it, we want to learn to fear you, to obey you, most of all, to love you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So since last week, we are now going to be in a long stretch of 1 Samuel where David is running away. He's fleeing for his life from the murderous plots of King Saul. We saw last week that even though David is God's anointed king, he's received all these promises from God about what's going to happen to him in the future and how God's going to use him to rule over his people. Even though he is a man after God's heart, even though he is a man who's seen great success, great victory in all kinds of areas of his vocation that God's been helping him with, in spite of all those things, we talked about last week, that that doesn't mean that David's life as God's anointed is going to be very easy. We're seeing how difficult it really is, how incredibly painful and lonely his calling is. And so however we might wish that it were otherwise, uh, the Bible all over the place, not just in 1 Samuel, but all over the place, the Bible is quite clear that comfort and ease and security generally do not really teach you to see God's beauty or to depend on his mercy. We've said over and over again that David is pointing us forward to his descendant, Jesus. He's pointing us forward to the ultimate Messiah and King uh, that God is going to send one day as the son of David. And so in many ways, the deepest meaning of this passage, uh, of these chapters about David running away all the time, the deepest meaning of it is about the misery and the suffering of Jesus as he fulfilled God's own calling on him to rescue and rule over God's people and God's world. Um, but even as the passages are most deeply about Jesus, about how God provides for him while he's on the run, uh, these passages are also about God providing for us, as we too, in our own ways, find ourselves in an exile like David's, as we ourselves face similar kinds of fears and enemies and sufferings. And so that's where I'm going to mainly focus today. How does this show us that God provides for us in the midst of our own wanderings. I'll turn to the Psalms quite a bit to help us do that because so many of the Psalms uh, are specifically set within this context, within these chapters and events that are happening in David's life. Uh, many of them, I think, um, some of them explicitly say this is about what happened when David did this, um, but I think lots of them, even more than that, implicitly are talking about this period of David's life and even David as kind of a, a paradigm of somebody who's on the run, somebody who's suffering and depending on God to provide. So look now at chapter 21. Flip back to that. If you have a Bible, keep it open because we're going to be jumping around quite a bit and moving through it fairly quickly. But we're at chapter 21, beginning to wonder, what does this tell us about how God will provide for us? David has just fled from Saul's court with nothing but the cloak on his back, and he stops by this town called Nob, which apparently is where the priests and the Ark of the Covenant are now headquartered. Fear is one of the main themes of these few chapters, and you see right away that the head priest Ahimelech comes out, he sees David running up, and he's trembling. He's afraid about what it means. This is one of Saul's most important servants. Uh, there's been rumors, of course, that there may be a rivalry growing between Saul and David, and so now he sees David running up alone, running up alarmed, running up in great distress, and it, he knows that this can only mean that something's going wrong. Uh, so he says, what are you doing here? What's happening? David gives this vague cover story about the king. Uh, it may be a bit, of a, a bit of a dodge, talking about God, maybe not. Um, he says, well, the king has sent me on this urgent mission, and he's clearly misleading the priest in a way that uh, is clearly well-intentioned, but perhaps morally ambiguous, especially the consequences that it's going to bring later on the family of this priest. 
David is desperately hungry, and so he asks the priest, give me whatever food you've got. But all they have are these loaves of holy bread uh, that were just replaced. Um, If you remember from when we went through Exodus, we talked about this bread and the furniture that it sat on top of. This is the bread of the presence, literally the bread of the face, God's face, um, that the priests would put out on this special table in the tabernacle every week. They would replace it on the Sabbath. It was a symbolic reminder that God was always graciously present with his people. That's why it's called the presence or the face. God is there with you, looking at you, smiling at you, helping you. Um, But it wasn't only a reminder that God is present with his people. There were 12 loaves um, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. It wasn't just about his presence. It was also about his provision. It was a reminder of how God fed the Israelites in the wilderness with bread from heaven. That God is here with you, but he's not just here with you. He's also here with you to provide for you. Normally, that bread, when you replaced it once a week, was only for the priests to eat. And so it's pretty odd that this priest, uh, apparently without worrying about it that much, just says, well, here, you can have this bread, David. Um, But I think part of the point here, um, which Jesus later refers to this passage when he gets criticized by the Pharisees for letting his disciples eat grain on the Sabbath. Jesus points to them and he says, you don't know your Bibles very well. Don't you know the story about David? Uh, And part of Jesus' point is what I'm trying to say now about this passage, that In David, David is uniquely melding the roles of king and priest in some ways. Uh, And Jesus does that in a a maximal kind of way. He is God's king. He is God's priest. He has every authority to take what belongs to God and give it to God's people to provide for them. And so we're starting to see that with David. And that's maybe why the priest isn't so worried about giving this bread to him. is because he has this unique role as God's anointed. He's uniquely qualified to eat the bread. He's uniquely qualified to provide the bread to his people. But David doesn't only get bread, he also gets a weapon. He gets the sword of Goliath that he had used when he was younger to hack off the giant's head. Uh, The point is not just that God provides for his Messiah, uh, not only the sustenance, but also that God provides the victory, the defense that God's Messiah needs. And so by extension, it shows us as God's people that God is committed not only to providing for our needs, Uh, Even our material needs, we're not too spiritual to say that God doesn't care about things like bread and work and money. God does care about those things. God provides them for us. But it's also telling us that God uh, provides protection for us. God provides defense for us. God takes care of us in all kinds of ways. All through these chapters, this is setting us on the right trajectory as we now follow David on his exile. All through these chapters, the point is that God is graciously and powerfully committed to providing for his king, and by extension, providing for his people. God wants to take care of you. How many of our sins, how many of our struggles, how many of our bitternesses and frustrations come from a basic disbelief in the fact that God will take care of you? So many times we don't think God's going to take care of us. We might look at the past and say, well, he's done it in the past, but we effectively think a lot of the time he's forgotten about us. Uh, I've used up all of my chances with him. I'm on my own. I have to do it myself. The big point for us this morning is that God really does want to provide for you. God will take care of you, just like he took care of David. Now in verse 10 of chapter 21, David flees to the west. He flees out of Israel. He goes into the territory of the Philistines. He actually goes into Goliath's hometown. He goes to Gath. Uh, And so you might expect, you've just heard that he just got strapped with Goliath's giant sword. And then he goes into Goliath's hometown, and you think, oh boy, this is going to be really exciting. He's just going to whack them all down and kill everybody, and this is going to be really cool. Uh, But that's actually not what he goes there to do. He goes there to hide. 
and you quickly learn that he's not hiding very well. In verse 11, the servants of the local king quickly figure out who he is because his reputation has preceded him. Uh, Even beyond the land of Israel, you have this viral hit going around about how he's killed tens of thousands of his enemies. And so they know that he's the one who has outshined King Saul. Uh, And so they capture him, they bring him to their king. In verse 12, you hear that David is very afraid. David is very afraid. He's heard God's promises about him becoming king one day, but things sure don't look that way right now. There's no way out as far as he can tell, and so he's very afraid. He's terrified. He gives another ruse. You've noticed all through 1 Samuel, this theme of people kind of deceiving other people, giving ruses. He gives another one now. David pretends to be crazy. He drools all over himself. He claws at the door, and it works. The king says, are you kidding me? This is David, the mighty David that I've heard so much about? Give me a break. Get this guy out of here. It's a pretty odd story, of course, but uh, at least two different psalms are explicitly tied to this event, as strange as it is. And both of those psalms deal largely with fear. A lot of fear and anxiety the last couple years, of course. I've watched many of you. I've talked with some of you in your own fears, some of them paralyzing as you confront your mortality and the many dangers around us that are so hard for us to control. And so what precious medicine these stories and psalms can be for us in a world with so many things to be afraid of. Listen to some of the lines from Psalm 34, which is one of the psalms that gets tied to this. And ask yourself, as I read these lines from Psalm 34, is this my posture? Is this what my prayers sound like when I'm in a situation of overwhelming fear and danger? Do I have this kind of confidence that my good and generous God will protect me and provide for me no matter what's happening? Do I trust that God will rescue me from my enemies, whether they are human or spiritual or physical or natural or medical or psychological? Psalm 34, verse 4. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's one of my favorite verses to send to you guys. Uh, Many of you have gotten that from me in a text. Uh, Psalm 56, another psalm explicitly tied to this episode in David's life when he's acting like a crazy person and he gets out of it. Listen to verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Verse 11, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? You notice that David in these Psalms is not saying, Oh, it's not that dangerous after all. I was kind of scared for a while, and then I realized, well, I'm not really in danger. Or then I realized, oh, I have a way to get out of this. The whole point is that it really is dangerous. It really is fearful. I think sometimes we think, well, I can trust God when I actually get out of the situation or when I can see a way out of it. But the whole point is that David is in a situation of overwhelming danger, and he still says, 
I won't be afraid. Because God hears. God listens. God's keeping count. When you're tossing in your bed at night, when you're rolling around and around and around because you're so anxious and you can't sleep, David says God's keeping track. God's counting it. God knows. He's watching you. He's taking care of you. He'll provide for you. God provided sustenance and protection for David, and God rescued David from this situation of apparently utterly inescapable danger, and he can do the same for you. Listen again. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In chapter 22, David now goes back east. He started in the middle. He went west to the Philistines. Now he goes back east. He goes through Judah, keeps going, and now he ends up on the other side of, of Israel. Um, he picks up on his way through Judah. He picks up a whole crew of freaks and rascals and losers, much like Jesus did in his own ministry. Listen to this. I love this verse. Everybody who is in distress, everybody who is in debt, everybody who is bitter in soul gathered to him. There are a lot of people being crushed under Saul's oppressive thievery, under his paranoid purges, and so they are drawn to David, even though, in many ways, David is a loser. David's on the run. David's totally vulnerable, but they are attracted to him, just like the prostitutes were, just like the tax collectors were to Jesus. So David now takes his biker gang further east, outside Israel, into Moab. He goes from Philistia through Judah, keeps going. Now he's in Moab, where he ensures that his family are going to be taken care of. At first, that might sound a little weird until you remember that David actually has some Moabites in his family. If you know the story of Ruth, David's great-grandmother was a Moabite woman named Ruth. And so he has family there. He gets his family to stay safe with them. But David, God's prophet comes to him there in this place of safety. He's escaped from Saul. He's under someone else's jurisdiction. But God sends his word to David, and he says, go back. Don't stay here. This is too safe for you. You need to go back. God sends his anointed out of safety back into danger in the land of Judah because sometimes God does not want you to be safe. Sometimes Jesus says to his disciples, I am knowingly sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Sometimes God wants to teach us that there is much more to life than staying alive. Sometimes God wants to teach us that he's going to provide for us even in the midst of great misery, great danger, great fear. And he's doing that with David. He says, go back. Don't stay here. I have work to do with you. In verse 6, you get a scene change. And we move away from David for a little bit. Saul now, we hear, has heard that David's been found. And we hear that Saul is sitting under a tree. This is a common posture for Saul, we've seen. His servants are standing up all around him. And of course, Saul is never to be parted from his trusty spear that he keeps trying to kill people with. He has it too. It's a picture not only of his usual passivity. He's just hanging out, sitting there in the place of comfort. Um, it's not only a picture of his own murderous bent. He has the spear ready to kill. But also it's a picture of his ease, how well things are going for him. He's sitting around. Everybody's waiting on him. And then he turns and he berates them all for not telling him sooner about David and his friendship with Jonathan. None of them answer his rant, but a foreigner named Doeg chimes in. We heard about Doeg earlier at the tabernacle watching David with the priest. And so Doeg now is back with Saul, and he says, oh yeah, I saw David. Uh, he was at the tabernacle. The priest gave him bread. The priest gave him a sword. The priest was praying for him. The priest was finding out what God wanted for him to do. 
So then Saul summons all these priests to him. He accuses them of conspiring against them. They say, we have no idea what you're talking about. We didn't know what David was doing. Uh, The priest tries to defend David's innocence, defends his own innocence. But then in verse 17, uh, Saul condemns him to death. And Saul turns to his servants and he says, okay, guys, kill everybody. Just kill them all. They rightly refuse to obey his evil command. But Doeg, the Edomite, the foreigner there in Saul's service, Doeg is happy to do it for him. And in this display of vile depravity, he goes even way beyond what Saul initially told him to do. He slaughters all 85 of the priests, and then he totally annihilates the entire town. Women, children, livestock. Uh, This is supposed to be a bit of a a macabre echo for us, because you might remember that Saul was told in a unique command that God had given him uh, after a long period of time. God had told Saul, I want you to go do this to the Amalekites. And Saul, thinking that he knew better than God, refused to do it. And this was in large part why God said, I'm done with Saul as king. He won't obey me. He doesn't listen. He thinks he knows better than me. And so Saul refused to do it when God told him to do it. But now he's totally fine with Doeg doing it to God's own people. And so you are meant to see again how deeply Saul has fallen, uh, how dark the human heart can be. One of the priests, though, manages to escape. He tells David what's happened, who at some level Uh, seems to be owning that his deception has contributed to all this murder and all this destruction. But he says to the priest, verse 23, he says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. There's the fear theme again. He says, don't be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. And so David says to him, don't be afraid. Everything around you indicates that you should be afraid, but he says, don't be. We are in the same boat now. I will protect you. It's very similar to what Jesus often told his own disciples. If the world hates you, don't forget that the world hated me first. Far more than David, though, in God's King Jesus, we are protected in a much greater way from all dangers, from all enemies, and so in a much deeper way, we don't need to be afraid. Jesus will protect us. We're in the same boat. You hear this posture in Psalm 52, uh, which is written as David's expression of rage against Doeg, against this guy who betrays him. Psalm 52 uh, mostly is him being very angry at Doeg and what he's done, but it ends with confidence that God will protect him. It ends with confidence that God will provide for him. Uh, In that Psalm, Psalm 52 verse 5, David places his hope in God's judgment of the wicked. Uh, these, you see this all over the Psalms. We sang one of these Psalms. We'll mention it in a bit. Um, these are called imprecatory Psalms. There are a lot of them. There are many Psalms of anger at injustice in the world, many Psalms of anger at people who oppose God and who harm his people and who harm his work. David places his hope in God's judgment um, with words that even we today not only can, but should take up in our own prayer lives as we also face today profound injustice and betrayal and abuse in our own lives and families and society. Um, Our world, of course, is full of anger right now. People are so angry about so many things. And the Bible is full of these songs and these prayers that teach us what to do with our anger. They show us a way that God has given us to express them to him, to process what's going on in our lives and in the world. Um, 
and they are prayers for us as Christians. We're not too good for being angry. There are things we should be angry about. There are things we must be angry about. Um, I just read a quote this week from John Chrysostom. He was a uh, early church father. He said, it's a sin to not be angry at things that you should be angry about. Um, consider, the, I mean, people scrolling through Twitter and Facebook, and, you know, those kind of have their own imprecations, their own pronouncements of judgment and hatred and um, wishes for destruction. And look at what it's doing to people. Look at what it's doing to our society. This is much better for your soul. This is much better for your spirit to pray through these psalms than it is to sit on social media stewing in rage at what's going on. We need to look forward to what God's doing. God will right every injustice. Listen to what uh, David says in Psalm 52, verse 5. He says to Doe, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And then he invites us. He says, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. He says, Doeg thought as he was standing there watching me, and as he goes and he tells Saul what I'm doing, he thought that he was secure in his own strength, in his own possessions, in his own status. But David and we know that God is watching, that one day God will expose everything. Even the, the stories of injustice that reach our news feeds, uh, that reach websites, that reach um, newspapers, even those stories of injustice that we hear about are almost nothing compared to all the injustice that's going on in the world that no one will ever hear about. All the tears that no one will ever see, all the cries that no one will ever hear. But God is watching. God knows about it all. God's keeping track. I've told a couple of you that the older I get, the more and more that I see that God's wrath against evil is actually good news. It's not something to be ashamed of. David knows that God will repay Doeg for what he's done. But in the meantime, he's looking forward. He knows that one day God will do what's right. But in the meantime, as he waits, he and we can say this, so different than the way people post on Facebook about all the things they're mad about. David says this, in the meantime, this is our posture as we face injustice. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I'm like a, a, a verdant, productive, fruitful, safe tree uh, that's fruitful and healthy. He says, I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever. Our posture as we look at injustice in the world, as we look forward to God writing all things at the end of history, uh, God writing injustice even in the midst of history through tearing down evil people and evil acts and in evil organizations, even still our posture is one of saying, I trust in God's love. I trust. You can and you should pray these prayers of anger against violence and injustice and abuse. But at the same time, you can and should pray these prayers of confidence in the Lord's everlasting love. God does and God will provide for you. You can trust him. In chapter 23 now, David is fleeing around his homeland of Judah. God said, go back. Go back to the place where you're really danger in danger and run around there some more. So David's back there running around some more. First, in verses 1 to 15, David saves this town called Kela from the thievery of the Philistines. And then once again in verse 2, this is another theme in these chapters, David's prayer life. David constantly seeking God's face in prayer, seeking God's will. What do you want from me, Lord? Uh, do you think I should do this? I'm not sure about this. I'm afraid about this. And so again, he's praying, 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 praying all the time. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And God says, yes, go for it. And then David tells the biker gang, okay, guys, we're going to go attack the Philistines. 
And they're afraid. They say, whoa, it's bad enough that we're running away from Saul. How much worse will it be when we face the mighty army of the Philistines? And so David prays again, verse 4, and God reassures him. God says, I will give the Philistines into your hand. I really like this. It's a little point, but God doesn't rebuke the men for their fear. He doesn't say, well, don't you trust me? Why are you guys so afraid? Didn't I tell you the first time to go do it? God reassures them. Uh, He doesn't say to them, what are you doing here again? Leave me alone. I'm too busy for you. Uh, You're making me mad. Never mind. I'm not going to do it for you. He graciously responds to their fear with a further promise of his protection. He says, yeah, no, you can trust me. I really will save you. I really will make sure you're okay. They and we don't need to be afraid in the face of our enemies. David saves the city, but Saul finds out that he's there and plots to besiege him there in the city. And so once again, David prays and seeks God's will, and God then warns him that the town is going to hand him over to Saul. And you can understand at one level why they would do it. Uh, You know, maybe just better for them uh, in a crass kind of way, to get rid of David and go back to living their peaceful lives. But of course, it's profoundly ungrateful. It's even treacherous. Uh, They are fellow members of the tribe of Judah. They're his distant family relatives. But even so, they're going to turn him in. And so once again, David's on the run. Nowhere he can get a break. Nowhere he can get some peace. But once again, you hear that God provides for him. Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into their hand. And that's probably the setting for Psalm 63, which we're told was when David was in the wilderness, where you hear David praying this. Psalm 63, listen to some of these verses. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. He goes on, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Are any of you in the wilderness today, wandering around, running around, not sure what the future holds, not sure how God's going to take care of you? Are any of you thirsting for God, fainting for God? To say that my soul thirsts for you is actually the opposite of saying, I'm totally fine, everything's great, my spiritual life is wonderful with God. It's an expression of lack. It's an expression of not having something that you desperately want. And so with David there in Psalm 63 in the wilderness, we are called to cling to God. We are called to know with him that God's right hand is holding us up. It's at this point now, out in the wilderness, that Saul's son Jonathan comes out to David. We didn't read this part, but we hear that Jonathan comes to David to strengthen his hand in God. It's a beautiful picture of what Christian friendship and community could look like. It's a part of what it means to be part of Jesus' church, to go out to people in whatever kinds of suffering or wilderness they are in, to encourage each other about God's character, about God's promises to provide for us, to tell them, like Jonathan told David, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God will take care of you. Are there any ways that you might be better able to do this for each other. Not so much to uh, feel sorry that people aren't doing it for you, although there's a place for that, but to think, how can I do this for other people? How can I go out to them and strengthen their hand in God? Tell them, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Jonathan reassures David that God's promised that he's going to be king, 
And Jonathan, we hear there, has every intention of being there right alongside David, being happy with him. Uh, But tragically, this is the last time that David and Jonathan are ever going to see each other. Jonathan has his hopes and his plans to stand there at the right side of the throne with David one day, but God has other plans. They're not going to see each other again. David is now betrayed by the Ziphites. This is another set of relatives from his tribe of Judah. His relatives in Cala were happy to get the salvation from him. They were ready to hand him over because things went sideways and they said, well, sorry, Saul's going to kill us if we don't give you over. But the Ziphites take it even further. Um, Saul doesn't even know that David is there, but like Judas betraying Jesus, they go out of their way to tell the enemies where he can be found. They say, oh, let's go tell Saul that David's here. They offer to lead Saul to him. And so once again, David has to run. But just when he's about to be surrounded by Saul's army, a messenger appears telling Saul to hurry back to come deal with this attack by the Philistines. God, at the very last second, has intervened in the political and military realm to rescue his anointed from yet another situation of inescapable danger. Psalm 54 is the one that we sang at the beginning of the service is tied to this uh, experience. Looking back on the whole betrayal, the whole rescue, David says that God is my helper. God is the upholder of my life. God has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. How wonderful would it be on your deathbed to be able to say those things like David did. All through these chapters, we've seen how God has provided for his anointed king in the midst of all his fears, all his dangers. Did you notice in those Psalms how often David kept talking about all my fears, all my dangers, all my troubles, all my tossings, this whole comprehensive exile of life that we find ourselves in. God protected him. But in and through his greater anointed king, Jesus, God provides for you in a much deeper, in a much richer way. Even more than David, Jesus is a far greater protector. Jesus is a far greater leader. Jesus is a far greater champion. And so just like God rescued Jesus out of all of his afflictions, so also will God rescue you out of yours. Just like God kept count of all of Jesus' tossings, so God is keeping count of all of yours. Let's close with Psalm 56 again. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Let's pray. Father, make us less fearful. Teach us not to just bury our heads in the sand and pretend like the world is fine or that our money and our possessions can keep us safe. Teach us to face the injustice and the danger of this world with eyes wide open. But even as we do that, teach us to come to you in our sadness and in our anger and in our frustration. And as we do that, Father, help us, as we've heard today, to see again that you provide, that you protect, that you're watching. Help us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.